and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Olga Olaker, speaking to you from Brussels. And I'm your other host, Alyssa Jobson, speaking from London. Today, we are talking about gender and war, specifically whether and when women and men, to say nothing of others, play different roles in conflicts and in insurgencies, and to ask how the roles that different people play tracks with widespread assumptions about gender and conflict. I'm not a woman, I'm, I'm a person. I'm a citizen of uh, this country. I'm a soldier, a sergeant, a combat medic, and I need to protect uh, this country. Gender dynamics play a crucial role in conflicts around the world, but are often poorly understood. From insurgency movements to regular armed forces, women are consistently involved in every conflict from prehistory through to the present. But both the roles they play and the ways they are treated are heavily constrained by societal views of gender. One assumption, which we've discussed on War and Peace in the past, is that women are, by default, civilians, even as men are, equally by default, combatants. All of this complicates and often subverts efforts to protect civilians, prosecute war crimes, demilitarize defeated forces, treat POWs responsibly, and so on and so on. Moreover, efforts to present a more feminist front on the part of some countries can clash with gendered realities. In Ukraine, for instance, the government consistently presents women as front and centre in the war effort, which they are, but this blurs the reality that the vast majority of Ukrainian female soldiers are in supporting roles such as communications or logistics, although many are also medics, which puts them at great risk while not being in a combat role. At the same time, the declaration of martial law and the restriction of movement for men aged 18 to 60 following Russia's full-scale invasion last year has placed the burden of childcare and support for the elderly more squarely on women, making it even more difficult for them to join the armed forces. A better understanding of the roles people of all genders play in a variety of combat environments could lead to more effective policies. This means understanding the motivations for men and women to take up arms, whether as part of formal armed forces or in insurgencies, and to discuss the benefits of greater gender parity for combatant groups. At the same time, policymakers must recognise the agency of women who take up arms, which also translates into holding people of all genders equally accountable for their conduct in war. To talk about this, we are excited to welcome Jessica Trisco-Darden to War and Peace. Jessica is an assistant professor of political science at Virginia Commonwealth University, where she teaches courses on political violence, human rights, and women in politics. She is also the director of the Security and Foreign Policy Initiative at William & Mary's Global Research Institute. She has published extensively on the relationship between international development, gender, and conflict, U.S. foreign aid, and the role of women in insurgencies, civil wars, and political violence. Her latest book, co-authored with Isabella Steffia, is entitled Women as War Criminals, Gender, Agency, and Justice, and it reports the research that they did on women who have committed war crimes and crimes against humanity. Jessica, welcome to War and Peace. Thank you for having me. Jessica, you've done a lot of work on women in both formal and informal military institutions. Would you say that the reasons women join insurgent groups, or for that matter, armed forces, are particularly different from the reasons that men do so? 
I think that all of the women that have participated uh, in conflict are, are doing so because they feel that they are contributing to the fight of their nation, whether that's defined in terms of an ethnicity, a religion, uh, or a, a nation state. Um, women have a sense of patriotism, have a sense of duty, um, but th- how that gets articulated is sometimes different from men. So for instance, in my research on women who were participating in the conflict in Eastern Ukraine, a lot of those women felt that they had to defend their homeland, but also their families. So we hear narratives about, well, I have to protect my children, I have to protect my mother. Um, Whereas when those sorts of personal motivations get articulated in terms of men, right, it's the sense of protecting their women, protecting their pride, and also protecting um, a sense of duty or a sense of service to the nation. So I think that the motivations are very similar, but sometimes the particular messages that get articulated sound different. And On the reverse side of that coin, what do insurgent groups and armed forces hope to gain from the recruitment of women? And how does that influence the roles that women are assigned? That question is a lot more difficult to answer, I think, because insurgent groups have very different goals and interests. So um, there's been a lot of research in political science looking at the different ideologies of insurgent groups and how they relate to the recruitment of women. So, for instance, perhaps not surprisingly, Marxist or left wing groups are more open to the recruitment of women than far right or Islamist groups because they have a greater space for women uh, and gender equality in their platforms. But even far-right groups and Islamist groups, which have um, ideologies that tend to place women narrowly within the confines of the home, still benefit from the recruitment of women. So to throw out a few examples, um, Islamic State group actively recruited women because it was a civilizational building project. The Islamic State group needed women to literally give birth to the next generation of fighters, but also to create the communities um, and state that it was seeking to, to build. Women also played important roles as propagandists, as fundraisers, but also as teachers and doctors. And all of those roles were permitted under Islamic State ideology. Women also play a very important role policing other women and ensuring that other women adhere to the group's uh, ideology and rules. And so we've seen that even after the, the defeat of Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, in the refugee and displaced persons camps where a lot of women and children are still to this day being held, we see some women burning down the tents of other women, uh, criticizing the clothes of other women, and really still trying to enforce the ideology of the Islamic State. On the flip side, on far-right groups, um, women often receive similar military training to, to that of men, but they're much less prominent um, in terms of the images that groups put forward. And they're instead engaged in uh, more of the cultural side 
of those organizations as opposed to the military sides. Um, so there are lots of Instagram accounts uh, associated with the far right that focus on kind of the trad wife movement, the traditional wife movement, where women are demonstrating that they're cooking wonderful meals for their husbands and they're homeschooling their children and here are my lovely chickens. Um, as part of kind of the renormalization of a gendered social order that these groups espouse. And and for armed forces, are the calculations similar? So armed forces often recruit women into very particular roles. So for instance, we've seen uh, women take on high profile positions as fighter pilots in countries uh, such as Jordan, for instance, Pakistan, where women's participation in the armed forces more generally is circumscribed. Um, I think that given the shift in many countries away from conscription-based armed services where a certain segment of the population is effectively coerced into service uh, and moving towards what we in the United States call all volunteer forces, where everyone joins the military of their own free will. Um, women have become part of the calculation because there just is simply a large portion of the male populace that does not volunteer to serve. And there is a portion of the female populace that chooses to volunteer to serve. Um, and militaries around the world are frankly still trying to figure out what to do with these women. A few careers within the military stand out as being particularly populated by women. As you previously mentioned, medics, um, kind of nursing, carrying medical roles are associated with women. Logistic services are associated with women. In some militaries, intelligence services are associated with women. Most of these careers within militaries keep women out of frontline combat. So you can have a wonderful career in a variety of militaries without ever being deployed to combat, without ever actively participating in it. Um, so women continue largely to be constrained to these sorts of support roles. I mean, one of the things we found, though, in recent wars is that being out of combat does not mean you're out of danger, right? Medics do find themselves on the front lines, even though they're not in combat. Can you talk a little bit about how we define combat and whether that's shifting? And is there something gendered about how we're defining combat and the people we assign to these roles and whether it works? So a really great example of this was the uh, U.S. military engagement in Afghanistan. So when the United States initially went into Afghanistan, it was a very kind of clear mission to uh, topple the Taliban regime and establish a democratic government in its place. But as that military mission dragged on and extended into a prolonged counterinsurgency operation, 
planners realized that in the cultural context of Afghanistan, they needed female soldiers on the ground to interact with the Afghan female civilian population because it was simply going to be unacceptable to have men interact with that population. So the United States um, deployed many female military personnel and they were part of what were called uh, engagement teams that went out on patrols but that would engage with women and children and try and build some sort of trust in U.S. military forces and, when necessary, um, engage with the female civilian populace during security checks. So the women, uh, the military women that were deployed to Afghanistan were not officially in combat roles. They were not taking part in operations to take out uh, Taliban insurgents, for instance. Um, but they were very much in an active combat zone, right? All of Afghanistan was considered an active combat zone. Um, and so there is this ambiguity about women who serve in roles where they're not necessarily actively participating in gunfire exchanges, but are absolutely subject to enemy hostilities um, and at risk of enemy fire at any given point in time. So there has been a lot of advocacy by um, women's uh, veteran groups to one, expand women's access to combat roles and saying, you know, look, we've proven ourselves in under fire in Afghanistan, in Iraq. We deserve to have all of those uh, combat roles accessible to us. And, and that was a very successful campaign that ultimately culminated in all combat roles in the U.S. military being open to women. Whether women currently serve in all of those roles is a different question that we can get to. Um, but we've seen similar campaigns elsewhere where there is a, a broad push by female veterans to be allowed to occupy um, greater roles within their national militaries. And this is a pushback to what you alluded to, that the idea that combat remains the exclusive domain of men. And women themselves are demanding to be allowed into that space um, and I think that's a very interesting, very recent development in terms of kind of organized political activity to allow women into combat. And presumably that restriction against women being involved in combat is due to the image of, you know, women as the weaker sex. I mean, is that is that what's really behind it? I think there's a widespread perception that women are a liability uh, in the battlefield. And it depends how you think of it, right? So one can think about it in terms of a physical liability that women are, most women are not able to carry the same amount of weight as your average male in the armed forces. Um, but you can also think of it in terms of a symbolic liability. And the U.S. experienced this um, where Jessica Lynch was kidnapped in Iraq and special forces teams had to be sent to rescue her. Two other women were killed in combat in the operation where uh, Jessica Lynch was kidnapped. And so, so it became very real very quickly with the U.S. war in Iraq that if women were deployed to these combat zones, that they were at risk of harm. And the American public 
does react differently to the deaths of female soldiers than it does to the deaths of male soldiers. And the kidnapping in particular of, you know, a young blonde woman uh, who was, you know, uh, an enlisted soldier really brought to bear the tensions within American society about the value of military service, but also the presumption that that service will be primarily carried out by males. So Ukraine has been struggling with this too. It's officially opened all combat duties to all genders. Its female veterans have won the right to be recognized for having served in combat after one of these fights, the sort you described. And the Ukrainian government has done a bit of campaigning of showing, you know, women on the front lines and, you know, the the president and defense minister, they're always taking care to thank the defenders and both both gendered forms of the word. But the realities aren't quite that equitable. And what do you think is behind that? Um, Is it just a matter of choice that women are less likely to choose these roles? Is it that they're uncomfortable there? Is it that they are prone to be harassed and treated badly because they are a minority? I think it's been very difficult in the Ukraine context to get a lot of clear answers to your question. So first of all, we have to remember that Ukraine has been at war for a decade now. Um, and that women have been participating in that war the entirety of the time. So over the course of that decade, women have absolutely made their demands clear, uh, as you just articulated. But because the country is still in a state of war, women veterans and the government and the news media have been very hesitant to discuss or publicize women's negative experiences in the military as conflict is ongoing. So while we know, for instance, that sexual assault and harassment rates in U.S. military academies have actually increased in recent years, despite greater awareness, um, that uh, rates of sexual assault within the armed forces have not gotten any better over the past decade in the United States. We know almost nothing about this in Ukraine's military. And I can understand the social pressure that veterans, male or female, current service members in Ukraine, male or female, um, the very intense pressure that they must feel not to discuss their negative experiences. What we do know is that um, certain types of women are more likely to currently be fighting in Ukraine. So again, in a decades-long war, women who initially volunteered to serve in 2013, 2014, 2015 are more likely to currently be serving. Uh, in part because they have military experience, they understand how the institution works. We know that women with children of young age are typically less likely to volunteer for the burdens of care that you mentioned in the introduction. We know that women um, who are more nationalist in orientation are more likely to serve. So we can say a little bit about those characteristics, but the reality is that when you have 42,000 women serving um, in the military, they're going to be a diverse lot. 
there are going to be women who've served in the military for quite some time, some who are very new. We have age diversity. Um, and so it, it is difficult to generalize about this population and their experiences. Ukraine has some policies on the books that would seem to promote parity between genders, but because of the way society is set up, they sometimes don't, right? So they have a policy that if both members of a married couple are in the armed forces, only one of them needs to be serving on the front line so that somebody can remain with the family. And of course, what that does is predominantly remove women from the armed forces because they're the ones who remain at home. Do you think this is a problem? I mean, does Ukraine need to do better at actually making um, the situation more equitable? And if so, why? What advantages would they get from a more gender diverse armed forces? This is a very difficult question. I mean, anecdotally, I have a friend where I live where they were a dual career Navy couple and one would be sent on a six-month deployment, the other would be at home, then they would flip, the other spouse would be on a six-month deployment, um, the other would be at home, which meant that, that growing up, their children never had both parents present. And so I think that if we're thinking about this as a family issue and a social issue, it's very different if we're thinking about it in terms of a military readiness issue. But it is very clear to me that globally, no military has properly addressed the, the practicalities of the lived experiences of military personnel in terms of childcare, in terms of housing, um, in terms of family support. So setting that aside as, as one of the real underlying challenges here, um, the pursuit of gender equity versus equality, I think is a very important debate for us to be having as a, as a society in all of our respective countries. Full equality in terms of open up all positions, subject men and women to the same physical tests, same physical requirements is not going to result in more women in service, right? Many countries have different physical standards for women versus men. And I think that those are probably appropriate in many contexts. Um, it's also clearly necessary from an operational perspective to have uniforms that are tailored to women, right? We do need gender differentiation in terms of protective gear, in terms of uniforms, even in terms of things like providing sanitary supplies, Women have historically had to pay for those out of pocket. They haven't been provided um, the way that haircuts and other things have. So the operational burden of women serving in the military is higher. It's different. Women can become pregnant. Men can't, right? All of these things need to be, need to be factored in. So I think full equality, it's not realistic. In terms of gender equity, within the military service, 
and ensuring that men and women have equal opportunities for promotion, for career advancement, for pay. Um, those things can be addressed and they should be addressed. Uh, it should not be the case that out of the salaries and stipends that they receive, that women should have to spend more of their own funds equipping themselves than, than their male counterparts. It should be the case that if women have historically had limited opportunity to participate in combat, then participation in combat should not be a key criteria for career advancement. Right. So we need to rethink what our goals and targets are as women's participation expands. And I think that to some degree, at least in the United States, that is being done, but it's certainly not being done on the scale um, that it needs to be to ensure that women are represented more thoroughly in the military. There's another related question, though, which is simply what are women really good at doing and how that, can that contribute to the operational capabilities of a military? And that, again, moves us away from full equality and perhaps towards a more gender-sensitive, skills-sensitive approach. And in some ways, Ukraine's attempts to uh, include women in the military forces and now uh, require the registration of women for conscription could be considered a skills-based approach. But they're not requiring all women to register. It's still that narrow set of women in specific fields, right? And it's not 100% clear how they're going to enforce it, whether they're going to try to keep them from leaving the country for real or just hope that the honor system keeps them there, right? It's a bit of a challenge. And so for, you know, for listeners who are not aware, when Ukraine declared martial law, it automatically subjected all men to conscription, but did not apply that to women. It later went on to revise various laws and then choose not to implement them and then to implement parts of them. Um, so it's had a very fraught policy approach to requiring women's registration for conscription over the past uh, two years. What is really problematic, though, is that this privileging of women under martial law, allowing women to leave, has meant that there are now several million women not in Ukraine that probably have some very useful skills for the military, but who because they're not physically present in Ukraine, will be impossible uh, to force to register for conscription, impossible to be forced to return to the country for military service. And so one key decision that Ukraine made that is now affecting um, the gendering of this war is that they did not allow most men to leave the country on the assumption that that would be the population that they would be conscripting from. When you look at the actual list of military occupations that Ukraine would like to have women register based on, 
it's quite broad. It includes the hard sciences, engineering, computer sciences, those working in kind of finance management, all the way down to cafeteria workers and slaughterhouse workers. So I actually think it it could, if enforced, which is the key with Ukraine, if enforced, cover a pretty broad spectrum of women, but there are many outs. So for instance, single moms get a pass, women with uh, more than three children get a pass. And so I think that, you know, for me, really the key is this, this care burden that, that you brought up initially. We don't have systems in peacetime or in wartime to compensate for that other work that women do in society. And particularly in wartime, because men are the primary basis for conscription historically, we've relied on women as a backup system. And I see that as a, as a key impediment. How does Ukraine's decision to conscript women and the processes that it's putting in place for that, how do they compare to conscription of women in other places um, around the world? That's an excellent question. So globally, very few countries conscript women. Um, Mostly when they do, it is written into the constitution of the country. And it's done primarily not in times of war, but in a generalized um, military service requirement. So countries that conscript women make both young men and young women serve um, in the armed forces, or if not in the armed forces, some sort of national service. And it's seen as a key component of nation building efforts. Um, So for instance, in Israel, both young men and women serve. Um, In other countries like Singapore, uh, women have the option to do civilian service. Some other countries have have this simply as optional as opposed to required. Ukraine is a little bit different because it is operating in a wartime context and it is dealing with these challenges in the midst of an effort to move from a conscript-based army to an all-volunteer force. And the the Russian invasion really uh, threw a wrench in that plan. Right. There were efforts to repeal conscription entirely in Ukraine uh, prior to the to the outbreak of conflict. So I think that that has really affected the, the kind of strategic calculations here. And so one big question to look out for is if and when this conflict finally ends, will attitudes towards the conscription of women change? Will attitudes towards the need for an all-volunteer versus conscripted military change, how will that play out? Um, In the United States, there have been a lot of recent debates now that all combat positions are open to women, whether women should also be required to register for the selective service, which is the pool of individuals from which we would conscript should that need ever arise. Um, Advocates for full uh, equality say, yeah, women should be made to register for the draft. We have some mad skills, too, that in real 
existential wartime situation should and could be drawn upon. Others say, no, women need to do all of these other things in our society other than fight war um, in the case of, of total conflict. And so it's really driven by social attitudes much more than it is by military planning. Um, and that, I think, has certainly been the case in Ukraine as well. And one more thing that I would add on that note is that women have been used um, since conflict broke out in Ukraine in 2013 as kind of this symbolic cudgel to get more men to fight. Um, so initially the narrative was like, look, women are fighting in eastern Ukraine. Shame on you, men. You should be coming here and fighting, too. And these poor women have to have to take your place. Um they're certainly being used to shame all of the men who have evaded uh, conscription. And we know at this point that tens of thousands of Ukrainian men have done a very good job of dodging the draft. Um, but even now, this idea that Ukraine would have to resort to registering women for conscription it's often framed in the press as a failure of men and not an achievement of women in having their skills recognized. And I think it's just important to recognize that narrative and, and call it out a little bit. You know, in World War I, the provisional government, as one of its last gasps, sent out a women's battalion to try to uh, shame the men. And the women's battalion, you know, did not fall apart. However, all the men around them did. So that did not, in the end, uh, serve anybody all that well. So uh, I think at least Ukraine's doing better on that front. Um, we are really sadly out of time. I wanted to get to war criminals and peacemakers and all of that, but I think it'll have to wait for, for another opportunity. Um, Jessica, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This was a wonderful discussion. For more from Jessica, you can follow her on Twitter, at Triska Darden and read her regular contributions in academic journals and international newspapers. We also encourage you to check out her books on the topic Insurgent Women, Female Combatants in Civil War and Women as War Criminals, Gender, Agency and Justice. And to read more of Crisis Group's work on uh, Ukraine, on various conflicts and specifically on gender and conflict, uh, check out our website www.crisisgroup.org. You can also follow Crisis Group on Twitter. Uh, Crisis Group is at Crisis Group, and uh, Elissa is also on Twitter as at Elissa Jobson. I'm no longer particularly active on Twitter, but can be found as at Olya Olaker on Blue Sky and Mastodon. We'd like to thank our producer, Alex Fogersky, and our coordinator, Heiko Schaub. But our biggest thanks, as always, go out to you, our listeners. If you have any thoughts or suggestions, email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. You can also leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And to ensure that you don't miss an episode, don't forget to subscribe to War and Peace if you haven't already. You can find us on all the main podcast platforms. So thank you for joining us and we will see you in a couple of weeks. Goodbye. See you next time.